Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks, your favorite political podcast that comes out on Mondays. Uh, I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. My name's Drake. And today we have with us a delightful guest. We have another member of the Green Party presidential candidate slate for 2020. This is Dennis Lambert joining us today from Ohio. Mr. Lambert, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Oh, no problem. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you're not caught up with the show, uh, we're trying to do somewhat of a uh, an interview series with all the different green candidates. And it's been very enlightening so far. We've gotten a, a variety of kind of viewpoints and stances of why the Green Party is necessary, how might they play a role in left activism going forward and electoralism, and uh, what each candidate brings to the table specifically. So I have confidence that this is going to be a good, fulfilling interview. Oh, thanks. So, Mr. Lambert, just to start off, uh, maybe we could start with some of your political origins. I know that you were in the military, which is kind of interesting for a Green Party candidate, to say the least. But also, it's not necessarily illogical to experience mm -hmm. these things and then come out on the other side with some of the viewpoints that you have necessarily. So maybe we could start with your military career and kind of where your political head was at then and what sort of changed maybe over those times and then kind of how that translates into the now. Okay, well, I graduated high school in uh, northeastern Kentucky, just across the river from where I live now. And uh, when I was 18, I registered as a Republican. And then a week after I graduated high school, I enlisted in the Army. The reason I joined the Army was a, a lot of different reasons. One was I grew up poor. I'm one of five kids raised by a single mother. We lived on food stamps and housing vouchers. So part of my reasoning for joining the military was, hey, I want to give back to my country. The other part was, hey, I want to go to college and I can't afford to pay for it. So the GI Bill paid for my associate's degree. But, uh, you know, throughout my military career, it was around 95, 96, when uh, Newt Gingrich wrote that contract with America to balance the budget. One of the things that they did was they put a hiring freeze on at the VA. I didn't know how bad this would get, but the hiring freeze at the VA that was instituted through that caused the backlog in claims to accelerate. Uh, so under Clinton, it went up to, I believe, uh, 200,000 or so backlog claims. And then by the time Bush got out of office, we were around 800, 900,000 backlog claims for disability. Knowing, especially at this point, this was a time when a lot of people were having Agent Orange issues come up. But I did not realize how bad it would get. But at that point, I said, well, if the Republicans who claim to support the military are not supporting the veterans, then I can't be a Republican. So about that point, I became independent. Mm. I didn't get very politically active for a number of years. In 2004, I was living in Ohio and uh, when I went to cast my ballot, they forced me to cast a provisional ballot. And I didn't know uh, what that meant. It seems that Mike Blackwell had purged my name from the voter rolls because I moved twice within that year. Mm. They never told me how to follow up on checking to see if my vote counted. So I never found out if my vote counted in 2004 at all. So by default, I elected George W. Bush when I knew we didn't need him for another four years. Mm. So when Obama ran, I campaigned for him because I believe that he would bring some change to the government. I, you know, I fell for the line that he was a, a, a liberal. Uh, sure. I, I, I also was in that <laughs> boat in 2008. So I yeah. Can, yeah. 
we've gone over and then uh, as of right now unreleased episode as to how we kind of got to where we were politically. And yeah, the the older ones of us definitely fell into that Obama liberal kind of, oh, we should we should support him. He's kind of. Yeah. The, the yeah. Pastor. Yeah. So uh, at the same time uh, that I campaigned for Obama, I was unemployed. So I, I moved back down here from uh, Columbus and uh, continued with my bachelor's degree because I never finished my bachelor's. After I got my associates, I just said, OK, I'm going to work. But not having a bachelor's held me back from a lot of work. So I came back and uh, finished up my bachelor's in 2010. When I graduated, I reached out to the Democrats and Republicans and said, hey, I want to do something to make my community better. And neither one of them got back with me. So I said, you know, this is supposed to be a democracy. So I reached out to the communists, the constitutionalists, the libertarians and the greens. And the greens got back to me and said, hey, we're trying to maintain ballot status. You know, the Democrats and the Republicans are making it hard for us to actually have a democracy where people get more than two choices. Uh, could you run for office? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, if you decide you're going to do it, you have two weeks to gather the signatures. <laughs> you really kind of ran the gamut there. <laughs> yeah. Just send, send in letters to everybody. Yeah, I, I did manage to get all the signatures. And How, uh, how turn... many signatures did you need for that? Out of curiosity. Only 25 valid signatures uh, because <laughs> I was running for the state house. If I was running for Congress, I would have needed 50. But uh, because I was running for the state houses, only 25. But I hustled. I got my signatures and I submitted it to the uh, Board of Elections. And then I got a notice from the Board of Elections that somebody filed a complaint against my registry to run for office. Turns out some big city Democrat lawyers up in Columbus uh, decided to challenge because uh, the form that the state of Ohio has at the top, it says, uh, you know, the term commencing in blank, two zero blank, it didn't have a comma or a space there for a separate date. And since the Secretary of State, by the time I filed my paperwork, didn't say when the term was absolutely commencing, I just put January as the uh, commencement time. Uh, so mm -hmm. they decided to challenge me on that. And I fought them off and uh, got on the ballot. My first campaign, I only spent about $700 and got about 38 cents per vote for the, the money that I spent. I spent only my own money on the campaign and got over 3% of the vote in that campaign uh, with nice. no coverage from the media. I attended a couple events and uh, got invited to a League of Women Voters debate and still managed to swing a lot there. That's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, 3% of the vote with that small amount of funding. I mean, we've discussed before on this podcast what some of the candidates are spending per supporter, and it can be into the hundreds of dollars. Yeah, yeah. So clearly your message was was speaking to some people is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's, it's, you can't do what you did without speaking to some people. Yeah, I think the the key to it was a number of people that I spoke to told me that, you know, I'm I'm not a regular voter and I wasn't going to sit out this election. But uh, since you came and talked to me, I think I'm going to vote and I'll vote for you and nobody else. I appreciated that to the nth degree. And that's partly what I'm campaigning on now again is to get these people who are disenfranchised or disillusioned with the, the electoral system to get them out to vote. Because if we get more of those people out, we could change the system. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of the other Green Party candidates that we've talked to already have also talked about this fact that, you know, there's there's more people sitting on the sidelines than voting for any one of the two major parties. So with that in mind, there's potentially room for a third party in America to come kind of sweep these disenfranchised people off their feet. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I ran again in 2014, but this time for Congress. And once again, I asked some friends for money. I tried, you know, I felt guilty about asking people for money to go look for a job. That's, you know, hey, give me some money so I can go do something. I kind of felt guilty about that because I grew up not having anything and having to be able to be smart, but with what you have. So when I ran in 2014, I did ask some people for money. I spent less than $3,000 in the Ohio 6th Congressional District. You can look it up. It's the widest congressional district in the United States. And once again, I got over 3% of the vote in that race. Mm. And I, I got invited to a C-SPAN debate uh, at uh, Marietta College on, on that one. I got invited to another debate on up on the north end of the state because uh, it, co- it covers from Youngstown to down where I live. So it's pretty much the entire length of the Ohio River on the eastern side. I got invited to one on the north end of the, the state. And when I showed up, they said, well, you didn't send a confirmation for attendance, so you can't be here. Mm. Wow. <laughs> It sounds like you've definitely experienced a lot of just strange pushback, you know? Yeah. Just just yeah. things, just little little hazards being thrown in your path. And uh, this is, again, something else we've talked to some outside the political norm candidates and people about before and, and heard similar stories. So I'm honestly, I wish I could say I was surprised to hear you say this, but at this point, I, I think it's, I kind of expect when I talk to somebody who's run as a green candidate that they're going to have some stories like this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the most positive thing that I got out of any time that I've run and one of the reasons why I'm running this time is because I've changed the conversation. The, uh, you know, the first time I ran, the Republican and Democrat there at that uh, League of Women Voters thing were starting to take up my talking points. And throughout the rest of the campaign, they were using my talking points. Sure. So I said, I, I'm nobody. How can I influence these guys this badly? It must be because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm running this time is, you know, I don't know how much influence I can have on, on the 2020 t- campaign, but if I can have any positive influence, then by God, I'm going to do it. It's sort of how the, and we've talked about this before, how the, the Green New Deal was originally right. a Green Party concept and it sort of shifted slowly more into the mainstream, or the left of the Democrats. Yeah. Not really the mainstream, but still, you know, these ideas carry and they, they're they slowly being kind of smuggled into more inside of the Overton window. And the more you can strongly present these ideas, the more they're going to be picked up on. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's same thing with the Medicare for all. I mean, a lot of the Greens, I mean, the party platform has been Medicare for all for a few years. And now the Democrats are starting to pick up on that. So, I mean, even if we are not winning elections, we are influencing policy. Mm-hmm. Right. So would you say that that's kind of your goal, perhaps right now? Like, because to use an example, uh, Communist Party USA has thrown in behind the Justice Democrats movement and basically just said, for the time being, unless their movement changes considerably, we're basically asking our supporters to help us support these people. Do you see like a role kind of like that for the Green Party? Or do you think that the Green Party has a future of its own right now? I think all these minor parties need to start cooperating as well as the Democrats with these minor parties, because there's a lot of instances. uh, I mean, the gerrymandering has made it nearly impossible for anybody but a Republican to win in a lot of districts across the United States. Mm-hmm. But there's also I don't I don't know how to call what to call it, but there's often unopposed races where Republicans have gerrymandered the district so much. But if the minor parties could partner together, or sometimes even with Democrats, if Democrats tell us in advance. 
chance, hey, we're not going to run anybody in this race and we're not going to support you, but go ahead and run somebody. We could possibly topple and build a coalition of third parties and the Democrats to push these Republicans who are, you know, forcing their policies down our throats against the Mm -hmm. will of many Americans. In the Howie Hawkins interview, we talked to him and he says some things about how the Greens and him tried to reach out to the DSA to form some kind of mutually beneficial relationship and have the DSA endorse his run for New York governor. But they they really weren't receptive. And so, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. It seems like the Democrat socialists uh, are still trying to hope that the, the Democrats will actually become more socialist. They're still betting on entryism. Yeah. 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 I'm from Louisiana, so I know very damn well what it's like to live under a Republican stranglehold in a state that really should be blue at this point. And Mm -hmm. Democrats do win. It's not impossible for them to win. But the Democrats that do get elected, they are what we call blue dogs, which are Democrats who run on a very... Which means they suck ass. Yeah, like the current governor (laughs) of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards is his name. Despite undoing a lot of what Jindal did and expanding Medicare, he also signed a heartbeat bill into law that pretty much guaranteed those restrictive abortion laws that you see in other places like Alabama and Mm -hmm. all over the South. It banned abortion after a heartbeat is developed in the fetus, which pretty much bans abortion entirely. So yeah, we really, like the Democrats here, when they get elected, they're often not even what you want. They don't support the Democratic policies you think they do. And they're just trying to base their platform entirely off of appealing to a conservative center, uh, because that's how they think they'll get by. Just keep appealing to this conservative center, keep pushing progressive legislation. Because all all electorates except for the conservative center have been gerrymandered and vote suppressed out of being able to vote. Yeah, the Democrat I ran against for Congress, uh, she was a pro-life Democrat. And, uh, you know, around here, they say, you know, in Kentucky or Southern Ohio, if you're a Democrat, you would be a Republican in any other state. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's his what's his name? And Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Over in West Virginia. Or I was even thinking about the woman that's running against uh, Mitch McConnell right now. I can't think of her name. Amy McGrath. Amy McGrath, yeah. If you look at her platform and the way that she talks in interviews, she would absolutely have to run as a Republican basically anywhere else. That's the strategy that they use in in the Southern strategy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of my friends across the river will say that, that you know, they would absolutely full-throated support her, but she's all for coal, uh, and that's what turns them off, that and being pro-life. Yeah. So you are running on a pretty interesting platform, I think, and I, I'd like to start with the end-all wars, especially because we already talked about the fact that you have this history of military service. For our listeners who know us, we are a very peace-positive podcast. We support a Department of Peace within the government and other measures to sort of change the tone of our international diplomacy towards a goal of international peace. So maybe you could tell us about your End All Wars platform, how you kind of came to that, how maybe your military service influenced that, and what you would hope to accomplish in terms of changing the dialogue around the use of military force. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend who's uh, really involved with the Syria situation right now. He lives in the Baltimore area, and he's giving me updates on that stuff. You know, I still have some friends that are in active service and some friends that have recently retired. So I'm getting information from a lot of different sources that, you know, the general public doesn't have access to. And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that they're high level intelligence or anything, but our military presence is a peaceful presence in a lot of places where we're not actually engaged in conflict, particularly in uh, Syria with the, the few 
troops we have there, my, my friend that uh, is working with the groups there said that you know, basically they are the peacekeeping force. They're preventing additional violence beyond what we're seeing now in some places. I believe the military can be used for peaceful means, but uh, you know, this endless war that we're in, you know, I was against the war on terror to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I served between the bushes is what I, I like to say. And somebody says a sniper. <laughs> uh, no, no, Bill Clinton was my commander in chief for most of my term. So it was 92 to 2000 when I was in. So I got out in June of 2000, September 2001, the attacks happened. And I work at a TV station at the time. And my first thoughts are, this is horrible. We need to find out who did this and, and prevent it from happening again. I even considered re-enlisting. But uh, at the time, my, my father was dying from prostate cancer, most likely due to his Navy service in Vietnam, uh, Agent Orange exposure. Mm. And they, they were really concerned about me going off and, and dying. I said, look, my enlistment up. I'm not going to go because I know my family needs me more than I could do any good for the country. At that point, they said, well, we're going to invade Afghanistan to uh, get bin Laden. Oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do a small incursion, you know, like SEAL Team 6 or something like that. And No, we're going to do 100,000 troops. And my first thought of that was, oh, that's a bad move. And then <laughs> a month later, it was like, uh, oh, we're going to invade Iraq, too, because they have weapons of mass destruction. And they threatened my daddy. Uh, so... I said, okay, well, this is absolutely effing ridiculous, and there's no way I'm going to support this. I didn't see an exit strategy. I just saw a theory that we needed to go in and change the regime and and prevent these weapons of mass destruction from being used against us with no actual evidence that there were any preparations for them to be used against Mm -hmm. us. Right. Or as we would come to discover that they even necessarily existed at all. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So now we're 17 years into it. A kid died last month who was only five years old when the attacks happened. So uh, we need to end this. I do have a little hope. Well, I did have a little hope up until Trump screwed it over that uh, (laughs) the Taliban were actually talking last year about, you know, let's talk about some peace let's uh let's resolve this uh let's try to have a equally representative government and but then trump screwed that up and wanted to invite them to camp david and all this so i mean i'm just mm-hmm. sick of all the death the dying and the endless expenditures for war that we don't see any benefit from uh, it's just putting our nation more into debt and of course now we're deploying troops to saudi oil facilities you know headlines two weeks from now Three U.S. service members die in an Iranian attack on Saudi oil. Five weeks from now, uh, an American submarine launched ballistic missile impacts Tehran. Ten weeks from now, uh, Iran surrenders like seven million dead. Yeah. And I'm just sick of all the death and dying. I mean, really, this mm-hmm. is, it's not making our country any safer. Not only is it creating more refugees from warfare and strife, but it's creating economic havoc on, on not only in that area, but because the pollution travels around the world, it's, it's hurting the entire planet. So we need to de-escalate the belligerent mode that we're in and gear up for peace. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a much greater war that we need to be fighting, and that's the war on carbon. Mm, yeah. That's just one part of the war, end all wars thing. I also want to end the war on drugs because, I, you know, evidence is overwhelming that the war on drugs is ineffective. I think it's $17 trillion that the U.S. government has spent since 1970. That sounds about right. And of course, you know, we lost the war on drugs. We lost yeah. to drugs. <laughs> Yeah, drugs are winning every day. (laughs) 
and not only that, but if you look at Portugal as as a an example, when they legalized the drug drug use dropped precipitously, uh, overdoses dropped massively. If I remember correctly, they decriminalized everything. Yes, they're still illegal to distribute, but minor possession is is fine. Yeah, and I don't know how how many people I, I've talked to who who said that I know this person who overdosed. That if pot was legal, they wouldn't have overdosed. I mean, Dan Aykroyd said it the other day on Joe Rogan's podcast that you know if John Belushi had been smoking weed with me out on this patio, then he probably wouldn't have died from that speedball. Right. So, I mean, the war on drugs creates a lot more victims and criminals than it does uh, benefit our society. The fact of the mm -hmm. matter is we can see that there's been no benefit in terms of where things were at at the start of the quote-unquote war on drugs and where they're at now. You know, nothing has improved. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very good that you bring that up in, in this context. So maybe you could expand just a little bit about what are some of the peaceful solutions that you see to some of these problems kind of? Yeah, yeah. Mo moving away from problems, what what are your solutions? Well, I put out a press release. I'm sure it wasn't covered by the mean mainstream media uh, a couple of weeks ago about mm -hmm. uh, the war on drugs. And the first thing that I would do would, within an hour of taking the oath, would be to write an executive order demanding that the DEA change uh, marijuana from a Schedule One to at least a Schedule Three at the minimum. Mm -hmm. To effectively end the war on drugs, as well as grant a blanket pardon for any nonviolent drug offenders uh, in the federal system. I would also defund the militarization of the uh, community police. Uh, you know, I don't see any reason why our our sheriff's department here in Lawrence County needs an MRAP. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Louisiana again, Louisiana is just like the hit list of like everything wrong with the United States. But I know the police <laughs> militarization very well because the website for the sheriff's department of Alexandria, you see it on their front page. They have like their entire squad up and just fully armed with heavy assault rifles and whatever. just on the front page. Like it's a statement like, yeah, don't fuck with us. That's what they're saying. Yeah, but really, I mean, police are no longer a force for good. They're just a force for enforcing whatever laws they choose to enforce at that time. That image of power. Yeah, and when I talk to people about their Second Amendment rights and they say, well, we need guns to overthrow tyranny, I said, well, who are you going to kill first, the sheriff's department or the military? Mm -hmm. Because that's who's going to be coming for your guns, right? So tell me, who, who are you going to shoot first? Now, I'm not you know, an anti-gun person. In fact, I have several guns myself, uh, but I am mm -hmm. a, I'm a responsible owner. All my guns have a lock on them. And the ammunition is stored away from where the guns are. I know that mm -hmm. because I served in the military as an armorer. Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Checking all the numbers on each individual rifle and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. We had to keep track of every, even to the pins that go inside of the rifle. We had to make sure everything was in place as mm -hmm. well as lubricated and ready to go at any time. But there was no ammunition within 20 miles of where we were storing our weapons. So <laughs> we can get on to that if you want to. But, you know, demilitarizing the police, taking a more peaceful stance in public affairs, trying to rebuild the relationships that Trump has already hurt us with. I mean, that, those would be my main goals to achieving peace. And I mean, liberal de democracy will create peace. And unfortunately, liberal democracy has kind of become a dirty word because we have people who oppose to representation by voters and are trying to purge whole classes of people 
you know, race, poverty based, mm-hmm. based on where they live. They want to exclude them from participation. We need to encourage more participation in our government. I think another major component of everything that I've been doing or talking about is education. And mm-hmm. and that's a very, oh, yeah. very long and winding road. If we want to get down that. But I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. I think essentially we need to seek peace with everybody that we can reasonably. I mean, there's going to be some need for military action. Now, whether that it's a violent military action or a military action where we just stand there with our guns at the ready, posing a threat to any possible conflict, then that's that's the best way to do it. You know, I'm a pragmatist. You know, I, I am optimist that, you know, that things can get better. But I also realize, you know, a lot of these Greens are calling for a, an absolute end to the military. And sure, that's that's great. Uh, let's make everybody else disarm first, because no matter how bad the U.S. military is, the U.S. military is still ethically better than any other military on the planet. Uh, you're going into education? Oh, sure. We can talk about education. It's not part of my platform, but, you know, I do believe that uh, our education system needs to be reformed. And part of that would be creating a more enriched education environment where you're teaching a lot of different things instead of the same thing year after year. I like to give the example when I was growing up in West Virginia, I was taking the same classes in sixth grade that I had in 10th grade in Kentucky. And it was essentially they were teaching me the same stuff over and over again. So and I, I think I've benefited from enriching my own education because when I was younger I most of the time if I wasn't out running around in the woods and exploring I had my nose in a book so I, I I wanted to learn but unfortunately you know school was too stifling for me they wanted want you to sit behind a desk and mm-hmm. take no, not even take notes just pay attention to what the teacher is saying and then at the end of the class we'll give you an assignment to do in some cases that does work but you know when you're putting four five six seven eight year old kids at a desk for six to eight hours at a time they're not built for that they need to run around and and do things and explore and dig in the dirt and (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know make mud pies and do that sort of stuff oh yeah mud pies (laughs) (laughs) well also realistically that's that even if we wanted to assume the very best of that form of education it would only be training people for a very small subset of life slash employment opportunities whereas a lot of these kids are going to get out of school and they're not necessarily going to work a desk job you know what i mean yeah well i mean even if you're going to work a desk job you still need to have some practical skills you know they call it adulting now you know i don't know how to change a tire i mean i don't know how to change the oil in my car or how do i change the switch on on my uh light switch you know or how do i rehang a door or you know, just basic life mm-hmm. skills. A lot of people are missing. School's not giving it to them because they're required now to teach to a test. Yeah, I, I've never had an adulting class as long as I was in <laughs> school. Was, it was most likely very limited elective. Those companies alongside, I don't know, a cooking class or whatever. Not to dismiss cooking classes are great, but <laughs> oh yeah, really the adulting. Yeah, I had a, a cooking class in, in school and that was a great way to eat. <laughs> Yeah, even even just since my time, um, I'm in my late 20s now, like I still got a couple of those practical classes. And like, you know, I have friends that have kids now or that have younger siblings that are still in, you know, high school or whatever. And it's all gone. It's all seems to just have been replaced at this point. There's none of that left. Yeah, it's it's very, the seam. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very disheartening. Yeah, because um, it's not applicated right then and there. It's learned in a safe environment, just divorced from the reality of it. So you don't really actually obtain it. 
you obtained the, an idea of it. I'd actually like to shift gears at this point and touch on something that you mentioned before the show, um, before we started recording, which is that you're a, you're a Buddhist. Yes. Which is a little bit unusual for a poor kid from Ohio. Yeah. Uh, speaking as somebody who, my, some of my youth was in Ohio, so I, I know <laughs> what kinds of people, <laughs> you know, I was growing up around. Most of them weren't Buddhists. Yeah. So uh, uh, maybe you could uh, get into that a little bit, how that became a part of your life, and how does that influence you politically now? Well, when I was uh, infant, I was baptized a, a Catholic. My mother, uh, her family was Catholic. Uh, Dad's family was loosely Christian of some sort. And, you know, growing up in the hills of West Virginia, there's not too many uh, Catholic cathedrals or, or any place to worship. So, you know, I lived in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia at the time, and there was a First Baptist Church there off of Main Street. And uh, I think I was, oh, maybe eight nine years old and going to Sunday school on a regular basis. And I just felt something move in me saying, you know, you needed to go ahead and get baptized. And I, I, I got baptized at, you know, that young of an age and became very religious in, in a sense that I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear it on my sleeve. You know, I, I read the Bible by the time I was 10 and I went to school or Sunday school uh, twice on Sunday and every Wednesday. And anytime the church had an event, I was there uh, up until I was about uh, 15 or 16. And we were sitting in Sunday school one afternoon and uh, the uh, elder there said, uh, well, it says here in the Bible that you don't have to be uh, in church every Sunday to be a, a religious person. Mm -hmm. That clicked in my head and I was like, what am I doing here? You guys are just reading the same stuff to me that I could read for myself. So at that point, yeah. I began my own spiritual journey. Uh, a month later, that, that same person came up to me and said, hey, Dennis, we haven't seen you in a while. Why have you been coming to church? I said, well, you told me, uh, you know, I don't have to come to church every Sunday to, to be a spiritual person. He said, well, I still want you to come. <laughs> Yeah, if you're not gaining anything from church, what's the point of going there? <laughs> yeah, it's not benefiting you. Yeah, so I I began my own spiritual journey at that time. And one of my friends from Boy Scouts uh, reached out to me and said, hey, I'm looking into becoming a Catholic. Weren't you Catholic? I said, yeah, I was. He said, well, come to church with me and help me figure out what this thing is. And I went with him and I said, okay, well, do you like it? He goes, yeah, I li really like the pageantry. It's really interesting. Da -da -da -da. I said, okay, well, I'm not going to catechism with you. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> so he started catechism. He converted fully to Catholic, uh, but I continued my own journey. At that time, I, I started reading about the history of Islam. I didn't read the Quran until about 2000. I, I did read parts of it, but I didn't read the whole thing until about 2008, 2009, uh, when I was reading about and uh, studying Sufism. At that whole time, you know, I'm just I'm learning about all these other religions. And then I took a philosophy of religion class in college and uh, I fell in love with philosophy from from that. Just, uh, you know, I, I tried to do some philosophical research. You know, I had a cassette series of great philosophers, Immanuel Kant and Adam Smith and a couple other ones. But uh, I never really got deeply into it until we started. I started studying religion on the philosophical level. And then I realized, you know, there's so many similarities to a lot of these. And when it gets down to it, it, I was like that labyrinth game, you know, where you had the little marble on the wooden board and you moved it around and you just keep moving it around and eventually it falls into a hole. And that's the way I felt about Buddhism is I fell into a hole that fits me. How long ago was that? I became an ordained Buddhist minister in 2011. So I guess officially I became fully Buddhist in 2011. 
And uh, and how has that Buddhism influenced your your kind of politics and your point of view? Like I said, I mean, I, I think it is more that I was always a Buddhist. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, you just didn't know it yet. Yeah, and it was just a journey of self discovery, and through me being able to overcome a lot of psychological barriers by you know exploring who I am on my own, you know, being poor, we can't afford mental health. Uh, so you do a lot of soul searching on on your own. So through my own experiences and having a bit of empathy for other people, that's what causes me to want to get involved in politics and try to change things so people can have their own fulfillment, either spiritually or, or in a corporeal sense. However they will feel best as a person, that's what I want for people. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, th I think a lot of the things that I campaign on are baseline things that are, are about just generally improving people's lives, trying to elevate everybody. You know, uh, mm -hmm. they say the rising tide lifts all ships. But if you're in a dinghy tied at a lower part of the dock, when the rising tide comes up, you're overflown. Sure. That's that's not a very good analogy. So I, I think, <laughs> you know, if we're all balloons, you know, we all need to be filled with helium so we could all float to the highest point we can reach. Mm hmm. With that said, maybe we we've kind of uh, brushed against a couple of, you know, dirty words in American politics, you know, socialism and communism a couple of times here. Maybe you could kind of tell us where you feel like you fall at this point on the socialism capitalism divide or where you think this country's headed maybe a little bit in that regard. We've had the previous candidates on before talk about how we need to move away from capitalism, we need to reform capitalism. There's definitely a lot of stances that are being taken. So, yeah, what's your kind of take on it? I'm working with the Green Party Economic Reform Committee to come out with a, a policy on economic reform. Personally, I'm a Star Trek socialist. Oh, nice. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, like we, we had Ian Schlackman on last episode. Yeah, we talked about Star Trek last week with <laughs> we did talk uh, about Ian Schlackman already. So this is exciting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Growing up poor, you know, we, we were always focused on having money or getting more. In fact, I think when I was very young, I, I told my grandparents I wanted to be a millionaire. Uh, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. I want to be a millionaire. So, I mean, but over the years and, you know, just through my Buddhist teachings and understandings, I, I've come to see that, you know, money is just a tool and that uh, people who have the most of it are the biggest tools. <laughs> <laughs> that's good i like that so but i mean it's it's only a thing that helps us accomplish things that we can't do outside of our network uh, of friends and neighbors so you know i i believe that eventually the that money will be abolished completely but uh, you know it's going to be a long hard process i don't think my bones will be warm by the time that happens but uh mm. Like I said, I, I want to elevate people as much as possible. If people really studied Adam Smith, they would understand uh, he advocated for a progressive tax on the wealthy. That way that everybody has the same economic opportunities to expand in capitalism. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. we've gotten away from that. We've gotten to this uh, free market totalitarian capitalism idea where it's winner take all. And, you know, I studied business administration when I was in college. Uh, I didn't graduate with a business administration degree because I couldn't pass the calculus part of it. But uh, they always were hitting at the point, well, the board will charge you that uh, your main responsibility is to make a profit for the company. And if you don't make a profit for the company, you will be held uh, legally and financially liable. But in all my reading, I've never heard or ever seen a lawsuit against a board or a CEO for failing to increase profits of any corporation. Yeah. <laughs> 
That sounds like something made up. Yeah. So the the profit in any costs, uh, any absolutism, in my eyes, is not a, a truth. There's no such thing as an absolute, mm-hmm. other than you know, infinity is absolute. There is an absolute infinity. But when we work in absolutes and, and create laws in absolutes, then that gives us no room to. Uh, have any moral discussion on whether or not that was a, a right thing to do in that particular case. So I, I don't believe in dealing with absolutisms. And I'm also not a Marxist. Uh, I don't believe that the centralized government should be doing all the planning for everything. Yeah, you'll get no disagreement here. I think we should be giving yeah. guidance above all guidance and influence. That's primarily what I think a, a central government should be. But uh, mm-hmm. absolutely dictating what uh, people should be doing is, is, you know, I think is morally yeah. apprehensible. Yeah, we, we don't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement there. I just have to ask, since it's been mentioned, I know I'm thinking on it that it probably was for me, was Star Trek kind of one of the first times you saw socialism in any kind of positive light? Yeah, yeah, and I didn't actually think of it as socialism at that time until the next generation came out and they talked about, you know, we've never heard of money. What's money? You know, and press latinum. What? <laughs> The neutral zone episode where they get some people that were frozen in the in the 20th century and then one guy was like a, a big investor or something and he keeps trying to ask like where's my money where's my bank accounts and captain picard has to explain to him we don't have money anymore you know we don't want for possessions we pursue our passions and that sort of thing yeah that's the episode i'm talking about i, I hadn't seen it in so long i couldn't remember exactly what it was but yeah i'm starting to watch voyager now i never really got into voyager and i worked at a upn station tv station at the time it was on i never watched it so now i'm catching up on it <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah yeah and the only reason why we don't see uh, socialist uh, nations succeed around the world is because the united states slaps embargoes on them and says to all our trading partners you can't trade with this person or we'll we'll start uh, either putting uh, tariffs on your goods or stop trading with you entirely that's exactly what happened with venezuela yeah, well, right. not only that, but Venezuela, before they started implementing uh, socialist reforms, was uh, you know as inverted a, an economy as possible. I think the top one percent had ninety nine percent of the wealth, and bottom ninety nine percent had less than one. Even now, Venezuela's economy is seventy percent in private hands. Oh yeah, it's still there's still a lot of problems, but people tend to talk about just what Venezuela is like now, and they don't tend to ever talk about what it was like before. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm not here to just defend Venezuela because it's a very broken system. But the point is, is that there's not always the clarity of historical thought with these socialist movements to look at how bad things were before they happen. Yeah. And put that into any kind of context. When I was uh, studying Latin American history in uh, college, you know, we, we went over the revolution in Cuba in the 1880s, 1890s. And, you know, mm-hmm. just understanding how that system in Cuba had changed around so many times. And then when communism came along, you know, they had 80 percent illiteracy rate. Eighty percent of the public could not read. And by the time you know, I think it was within five years, uh, it was uh, a 99, 100 percent literacy rate. Mm hmm. Yeah, and people don't talk about Denmark or Finland or Sweden or all these other European countries where socialism seems to be doing so well for them. Mm -hmm. They have a pretty big welfare state. 
They also don't talk about our socialism here in the United States. The police, you know, the the fire department, the libraries, the road right. systems, the educational system, the military. There's no greater socialist organization within the United States government than the U.S. military. Everybody gets fed. Everybody gets clothes or money for clothes. And everybody gets shelter. Everybody gets health care. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's wild how this stuff's overlooked. And we've we've joked before on this podcast about how the fact if the public library did not exist in America and it was being proposed today that, you know, people like Mitch McConnell would would laugh it out. They consider it some sort of commie idea or whatever. It would not even fly with people like that, you know? Yeah, why would you want a bunch of liberals to gather in one spot? Uh, Well, Mr. Lambert, this has been a wonderful interview. You've been a a very interesting guest. Before we go, we like to really visualize positive things a lot on this podcast and not just assume that, you know, we're headed for the worst in this country and in this world. And so we would like to imagine for the moment the most positive outcome of your campaign, which is that there's a landslide election of non-voters turning out and they elect you as president, what would be some of the most important things that you would focus on in those first days or weeks of that presidency to sort of change America for the better? What do you think you would do right off to just sort of push for that Star Trek America that you would like to live in? (laughs) Well, as I said, you know, the first thing I want to do is sign an executive order demanding that the EPA lower the uh, marijuana from a schedule one to a schedule three or or lower Mm -hmm. to end the war on drugs. You know, they asked us this, I think it was in uh, Missouri, you know, what do you see your first hundred days? I say, well, my first hundred days is ending the war on drugs and then starting to draw down our troops all all across the country. You know, if we want to support our troops, the best way to support them is have them come back home. Mm -hmm. Next hundred days, I'm going to be starting to work on that Medicare for all programs so that everybody in the United States can have the mental health care that we need for screenings to prevent lunatics from owning guns, as well as uh, all the medical needs that uh, we're facing in a changing environment with the additional chemicals that the companies are dumping into our waters, into our land, in our air. Mm-hmm. Not just um, care after sickness, but, you know, making sure the sickness doesn't happen. Right, right. And then I would start working on that uh, renewable infrastructure because that's going to be the long-term growth thing that I see is... I wish we had more time to talk about this, but, you know, the renewable infrastructure, I'm really starting to flesh a lot of this out. It's not only about uh, creating a more sustainable energy production, but it's also decentralizing the grid. It's making uh, communities have a source of income through electrical generation, as well as uh, localizing that generation so that when the power goes off in Cleveland, you know, New York City still has lights. Not only that, but it's a, it's a jobs program for building these things as well as maintaining them. And then after that, I would w- start working on the uh, $25 an hour minimum wage, which, you know, this is a, another long term thing. It, it may take us two or three years to get to $25 an hour. But I think, you know, just to kind of sidebar for a second, progressives have been pushing for a $15 minimum wage for years now. And there's some voices in the Green Party calling for a $20 minimum wage. So why do you think we should push it to 25 just an equity issue. You know, it's a respect for labor thing. If we want to look at the professional trades organizations, you know, if you are a master plumber, say you're making $30 an hour. If you're an apprentice, you're making 14 to $18 an hour. If we set up a structure like that with 25 as the master goal, no, it's just a bottom line. It's an equity thing for me, you know, and respecting labor because people just don't respect the worker anymore. You know, if 
we didn't have the janitor cleaning up after you're messing the toilet, nobody else would want to go there. If we don't have respect for these people, how, how can we expect them to have respect for us? And that's the bottom line for me. It, it's all about respect for the worker and making sure that once again, a family can support themselves with one income. You know, if we have a $25 an hour minimum wage, that's a one income family in most of the country. Right. I think it is possible. And, and if with, with yeah. a $25 an hour wage, you know, as a self-employed person, you don't have to pay yourself that, you know, you, you pay yourself equity from the business. And I think with a $25 an hour minimum wage, there would be an opportunity for a lot more people to be able to save up money and start their own small business, uh, whatever it may be. I worked for a nonprofit. And one of the jobs I had was training artists and people who made things how to sell their goods. You made your bracelet out of beads and, and silver string. So let's figure out how much that's worth and how much you, you should get for it. Then we'll, I'll show you how to market it, how to sell it. You made this quilt. How long did you spend on it? Okay, well, did you sew it by hand or sew it by machine? Let's figure out how much time that took you, and then we'll put a price on that. And that's the value of your labor. You know, the biggest objection I, I get from some people is say, well, my boss pays me this much. And I say, well, imagine how much more money he's making off of you if he's paying you that much. Uh, exactly. exactly. That's, the, that's the big comeback mm -hmm. argument. <laughs> And the bottom line, like I said, it's a, it, for me, it's about equity. It's making sure that people are treated fairly. It's about the balance, you know, maintaining the balance. Well, I think that was a great answer. Uh, Mr. Lambert, thank you again so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah, thank you. You've been a very interesting guest, and we hope to speak with you again sometime. No problem. Is there anything you want to plug, like your campaign website? Yeah, or please give us, your, give us your campaign website, social media, yeah, all that stuff. My, my website is www.dlpotus2020.com, dlpotus2020.com. All my social media is the same as Facebook slash dlpotus2020. On Twitter, it's at dlpotus2020. I'm using my personal Instagram for everything, so it, and that's uh, Tenacious Dennis. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much again for, for joining us. This has been Not Safe for Wonks. Leia Rose. My name's Drake. I'm Kennedy Cooper, and our guest has been Dennis Lambert. Dennis, thank you again so much, and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.